0: Greetings from Latter-day Media, presenting our dear friend and epic historian on Joseph Smith and Church History, Brother Kay Godfrey, The Echo of a Beating Heart, Part
1: 3. Our podcast today is uh, Part 3 of The Echo of a Beating Heart. I'm excited about this podcast. We're going to be spending our time talking about the year 1833, and the things that took place in Joseph's life during that particular year. going to begin with a discussion about the School of Prophets. It was the first organized school for adult education in America, and it was conducted in the upper room of the Whitney store. Adult male leaders from around Kirtland would attend, and members were received into fellowship, but they needed to participate in prayer the sacrament, and the ordinance of washing of the feet first. The first meeting of the school was January 23, 1833. One of the first of many spiritual manifestations took place just three weeks later. While the school was engaged in prayer, a personage walked through their midst. Many witnessed the presence. Joseph said it was Jesus Christ. The school resumed prayer when another personage was seen. This one was consumed in great brightness, and Joseph said this was God the Father himself. He then said, quote, You are now prepared to be apostles of Jesus Christ, for you have seen both the Father and Son, and know that they exist. Joseph's time was spent in instruction in the school of prophets and in the completion of the translation of the New Testament. New Testament uh, was finished on February 3rd, 1833. The Old Testament translation would be finished by July 2, 1833. The Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, however, was never published during Joseph's lifetime. Emma found herself caring for her two children and cleaning up after those who attended the School of Prophets. It seems that 22 of the 24 members used tobacco. Emma was a member of the Kirtland Temperance Society, a group of saints who opposed the use of alcohol, tobacco, and the consumption of meat. And she was often heard saying, and I quote, It would be a good thing if we had a revelation that declared the use of tobacco a sin. Well, the men would then retort, Well, let's have a revelation providing for the total abstinence of tea and coffee drinking. Now, this is intended to be a dig to the sisters, but well, on February twenty-seventh, 1833, the prophet made this subject a matter of prayer, and to the chagrin of all involved, he received the word of wisdom. Now, the word of wisdom did not become a commandment until the mid-1850s, but immediately all members of the school of prophets laid aside their pipes and tobacco. Let me read the slide. This is section 89, the header. Revelation given through Joseph Smith, the prophet of Kirtland, Ohio, February 27, 1833. As a consequence of the early brethren using tobacco in their meetings, the prophet was led to ponder upon the matter. Consequently, he inquired of the Lord concerning it. This revelation, known as the word of wisdom, was the result. And in verse 18, it says, And all saints who remember to keep and do these sayings, walking in obedience to the commandments, shall receive health in their navel and marrow to their bones. On a side note, the Word of Wisdom became a commandment during the September General Conference of 1851. Patriarch John Smith was at the pulpit preaching on the subject of the Word of Wisdom, when Brigham Young approached the stand and made a motion that from this point on all members should abstain from alcohol, coffee, tea, and tobacco. The motion was unanimous and it became a binding commandment at that particular point in time for all members of the church. John Murdoch, who was boarding with the prophet during the spring of 1833, describes in his journal another experience that he had relative to the school of prophets and while attending meetings in Joseph's home. He said this, and I quote, The prophet told us if we could humble ourselves before God and exercise strong faith, we should see the face of the Lord. And about midday the vision of my mind was opened, and the eyes of my understanding were enlightened, and I saw the form of a man, most lovely, the visage of his face was sound and fair as the sun, his hair a bright silver-gray, curled in most magnificent form, his eyes a keen penetrating blue, and the skin of his neck a most beautiful white, and he was covered from the neck to the feet with a loose garment pure white, whiter than any garment I have ever before seen. His countenance was most penetrating and yet most lovely, and while I was endeavoring to comprehend the whole personage from head to foot, it slipped from me, and the vision was closed, but left on my mind the expression of love for months and months that I never felt before to that degree. Another spiritual manifestation occurring in the upper room of the Whitney store was on March 18th, 1833. On this occasion, the prophet is going to give the keys of the kingdom to Sidney Rigdon and Frederick G. Williams, and he's going to formally organize the First Presidency. Many of the brethren at that time saw a heavenly vision of the Savior and concourses of angels. And on that same day, one of the most influential would-be apostates was ordained an elder. This man's name is Philastus Hulbert. Philastus' church membership lasted three months. On June 23rd, he was excommunicated for unchristian conduct with women. From that point on, he became public enemy number one for the church. With his image tarnished, Philastus sought out the assistance of the editor of the Painesville Telegraph, this guy's name is Eber de Howe. And together, they became the driving force for the production of a number of anti-Mormon articles, such as the Spalding theory, or Mormonism unveiled. They also authored a collection of more than 100 defamatory affidavits against the prophet. In introducing the Spalding manuscript theory as the source of the Book of Mormon, they became greatly disappointed when they actually located the actual Spaulding manuscript and making the comparison with the Book of Mormon, found no similarities at all. Well, so naturally they presumed that a second manuscript must exist. After all, they needed to perpetuate their belief. Well, today the Solomon Spaulding manuscript resides in the Archives Department of the Oberlin College in Amherst, Ohio. In May, 1833, the issues of temples surfaced. The saints had been chastened and told to begin construction of the Kirtland Temple. On June the 3rd, 1833, a council of high priests convened at Kirtland to discuss the building of a small temple. In the council, Joseph requested that each of the brethren give their views with regards to the building of the temple. They all complied with this request. Some were in favor of a building, perhaps a frame home. Others wanted a log house. Joseph then reminded the brethren, and I quote, We are not building a house for a man, but for God. And shall we build a house for God out of logs? No, I have a better plan for the house of the Lord. It was given to myself, and you will soon see his idea of this thing. Joseph then told of a vision received by the first presidency of the church, Joseph and Sidney and Frederick G. Williams. In this vision, they all saw, quote, a model of the building appeared within viewing distance. After we had taken a look at the exterior, the building seemed to come down right over us. This is the building we will build. I have a an architectural rendering of the Kirtland Temple here that's kind of fascinating. Um, It shows the breadth, the length, the dimensions of the temple, the kinds of of architectural patterning that would be used for pulpits and windows and various kinds of things. Um, We'll make sure that this gets uh, put online so you can take a look at this, but this is apparently the building that came down over the top of the first presidency of the church where they got a chance to view and see exterior plus its interior. The temple was to be built under the direction of Artemis Millet of Canada. Now, a nephew of uh, Mr. Millet tells the story. It's kind of a unique story. Artemis was not a member of the church at the time, and Brigham Young was told or challenged by Joseph to go to Canada, find Artemis Millet, baptize him, secure a $1,000 for temple building from him, and then bring him to build the temple. Well, later Artemis did arrive in Kirtland, and he did assist and coordinated the construction of the temple. The lot the temple would be built on was purchased from Peter French. In 2001, I had the opportunity to experience the renovation of a number of historic sites in Kirtland, including the Ashrian Sawmill. The Ashery and Sawmill were consecrated to the church as part of the law of consecration. Their foundations were uncovered, and the church has now restored these sites to their original look. At this time, Joseph felt the need to organize the city of Zion in independence with its 24 temples. On the 25th of June, 1833, a plat map for the building of the city of fifteen to 20,000 occupants was sent to independence along with the design for the temple. Now, independence was a volatile town. Missourians were leery of the growing number of Mormons. The Mormons had declared the land to be theirs, and that they were kings and priests. They sensed their growing power in elections, were uneasy with the relationships that the Mormons had with free blacks and the Indians. It was felt the Mormons might even take over the Santa Fe and Oregon trail trade, which trailheaded in independence. Scandalous lies were spread about the church, especially by Rev. Pixley of the Eastern Missionary Society and Rev. Phineas Ewing of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. These folks wrote in local newspapers, gave speeches, and even went door-to-door preaching against the saints. Pixley authored a pamphlet entitled, Beware of False Prophets. This was a time of prudence and caution for the saints. In Kirtland, there were also those committed to stopping the construction of the temple. However, on June fifth, eighteen 1833, George A. Smith hauled the first load of stone from Standard Stone Quarry and Hiram cut the first block. Many sacrificed all that they had for the temple. Brother John Tanner sold his 2,200-acre farm in New York in order to give $3,000 for temple supplies. The women made clothes for the temple workers, and the saints gave glassware to be crushed and mixed with the plaster to give it a shiny effect. On July twenty-third, 1833, the cornerstones were laid after the order of the holy priesthood. Heber C. Kimball said, During this time, the temple was constructed with guards and guns at every corner. We're going to pause now in our podcast. I want to share with you a video that is entitled, Treasures in Heaven, the John Tanner Story. John Tanner is my 13th cousin, and you'll see in this video his dedication to the construction of the Kirtland Temple.
2: My husband, John Tanner, was a kind and generous man. He was also a self-made wealthy man. But all his money could not save him. Seven revered physicians examined his diseased leg and each brought unwelcome news.
3: John? This canker will soon overtake you. leg cannot be saved. The leg must be amputated or you will die.
4: I am grateful for your efforts on my behalf, Dr. Black. But the leg and I came into this world together. And together we shall depart it. John, to be obstinate. Thank you, Doctor. But the leg and I will now be leaving.
2: John, keep it dry, please. John also left that office with two intentions. To set his business affairs in order, and with what time he had left, to do all the good he could. the opportunity came through a notice. Being a Baptist lay minister and wanting to protect his brethren, John prepared to expose those Mormon elders as the imposters they surely were.
3: I know that God has once again sent heavenly messengers to the earth and that he is called a prophet, Joseph Smith
4: to reveal the words of the ancient prophets. John, I've had enough of this golden Bible drivel. Care to join Catherine and me for coffee? Most kind of you, Barton, but I'd like to hear them out.
3: A Book of Mormon prophet said, And now, my beloved brethren, I would that ye should come unto Christ, who is the Holy One of Israel.
2: But as elders Simeon and Jared Carter taught that night, A powerful feeling came into his heart, unlike anything he had ever experienced. Pardon me, would
4: you have a copy of that book that I might review? Yes, of course. Would you
3: care to meet with us afterwards?
2: Over the next several days, he pored over it, comparing it side by side with the Bible. For John and me, everything those Mormon elders taught resonated with an undeniable spirit.
3: Then will you accept the Savior's invitation to be baptized?
4: I know baptism is essential, but I cannot. It is my my leg, my lameness. I I cannot endure baptism. And
5: I'm about to depart this life. John Tanner, do you believe that Jesus Christ healed a crippled man at the water of Bethesda? Oh well, yes, with all the certainty of my soul. And did not his disciples, Peter and John, heal a man? Lame from birth at the gates of the temple. If that priesthood power was part of the primitive church, would it not follow that it would be bound in the restored church? Yes. Do you have faith sufficient to be healed? I do. Yes, I do. And John Tanner, in the name of Jesus Christ, and by the authority of his priesthood, I command you to rise up and walk. You need not fear, the Lord can do all things.
2: John insisted on baptism that very night. And though he had not put weight on his leg for six months, he walked the quarter mile to Lake George. He then walked home, continually giving thanks to God. From the moment of his conversion, John gave his all. He supplied and equipped two of our sons, Nathan and John Joshua, plus another 50 men, to go to Zion's camp. And a few months later, paid to furnish seven families headed to Kirtland and Missouri.
5: John, Elizabeth, this is not a commandment, but it is a word of wisdom.
2: But John Tanner's story is not only about what he gave, but also about what he gave up. The day the word of wisdom was made known to him, he quit the use of alcohol, tobacco, coffee and tea, and never used them again. Barton, it is so good to have you in our home. Well, it was nice of John to have me over for coffee.
4: Now all you need is a friend who's sworn off cream and sugar.
2: As we prepared to join the Saints, John sold our hotel, several homes, two large farms, orchards, a dairy, a sawmill, an island, and more than 2,200 acres of timberland. In early December of the following year, the church was in serious financial trouble. Mortgage payments on the temple land were past due. Resources were exhausted. Foreclosure was imminent.
6: We have two, perhaps three weeks at best then they will reclaim it tear down the walls and plow them under i'm not sure what else we can do thank you brother richton but i believe there is something we can do that a miracle might be performed that thy holy purposes may come to pass we petition for thy mercy and help in sending us one with the means to pay the mortgage and save the temple.
2: Are you ill?
4: I dreamed we were needed in Kirtland.
2: When shall we leave?
4: Immediately. Now for our journey to Kirtland, we'll need 55. Hold on a minute, John. Did you say
2: Kirtland as in Ohio? As we prepared to leave, most of the town believed John had gone mad. Kirtland is hundreds of miles, John. It's the middle of December.
4: Appreciate your concern, Barton, but no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God.
2: Despite every effort by friends to dissuade him, on Christmas Day, 1834, we loaded up our family and a few others, all our earthly possessions, and departed. 25 days and 500 miles later, our tired and winter-wearied family finally arrived in Kirtland, knowing we needed to be there, but not really knowing why. But the rigors of our journeys seemed to melt away as we were finally able to meet the prophet.
6: And I am John Tanner. Brother Tanner, I know of your good heart. I believe a better name for you is Father Tanner.
2: Had we arrived in Kirtland just one day later, the temple land would have been foreclosed on. But John paid off the $2,000 owed, taking a note from Joseph in exchange. He then gladly loaned the temple committee $13,000 and signed another note for $30,000. All this while making liberal donations to the temple fund. John would never say it, but I will. Because of John Tanner, the temple was saved. When the temple was completed, we were blessed to participate in its dedication. Miracles occurred not just inside that hallowed building, but outside as well. During a later session, our son Myron beckoned me to come and see angels standing on the temple roof. It was a heavenly manifestation never to be forgotten. But John's giving didn't stop there. He invested hard cash in an attempt to shore up the troubled church-sponsored bank. Despite his sacrifice, the Kirtland Safety Society closed its doors in November 1837. And with it went the last of John's fortune. Unfazed, he was determined to follow the prophet and we embarked on the 1,000-mile journey to Missouri with nine of our children.
4: I paid my obligations and was then left with one old broken-down horse, an old wagon, and $7.50. Please, sir, a bit of buttermilk for my family and some bread, if you can spare any. We're very hungry. Good day, son. And what is your name?
6: Oh, this. Moses missed dinner.
4: No, sir, I beg of you.
6: Did I do a bad thing?
4: No, you said your name just perfectly.
2: In only three years, we had gone from vast wealth to begging for our bread. Then our precious daughter, Philomelia, succumbed to sickness and hardship and died on the trail. Moving with the saints again, we settled in Montrose, just across the river from Nauvoo and worked hard to rebuild and to pay off other church debt still owed from the Kirtland period.
6: My brothers and sisters, the following brethren have been called to serve missions. Parley P. Pratt, Brigham Young, John Tanner, Wilford Woodruff.
2: Then, at the April conference of 1844, he was called on a mission to the Eastern States With his typical unwavering faith, he immediately prepared to leave.
6: Lyman White.
4: Brother Joseph. Father Tanner. I leave today for my mission, but before I go, there is a matter I would like to settle with you. It is the loan on the Kirtland Temple land.
6: The Lord raised you up, Father Tanner, that you could build his kingdom through your sacrifices at this crucial time. I am eternally grateful that you were worthy and responded to his call. I am in your debt. What shall I do with this note? Brother Joseph,
4: the only debt is one of gratitude, and that is mine.
6: God bless you, Father Tanner. Your children shall never again beg for bread.
2: It is estimated that in all, John gave over $50,000 to the church. He had found the pearl of great price and did not bother about the cost. John Tanner not only understood the law of consecration, he lived
6: it. Father Tanner!
1: I'm hoping that you enjoyed that particular video. It really does tell the tale of a man who gave all that he had for the construction of a temple. The conditions in independence degenerated quickly, in part due to an article which appeared in the Evening and Morning Star, our Missouri Independence uh, newspaper. The article was entitled Free People of Color. It was an invitation for free people of color to join with the saints This was interpreted to be an open invitation for freed slaves to immigrate to Missouri, which was pretty much a slave state. On July fourth, 1833, a mob of a hundred convened at Independence Square in front of the courthouse and signed the Manifesto of the Mob, or the Secret Constitution, denouncing the Mormons. On Saturday, July 20th, 450 disgruntled citizens met and demanded that the saints leave the county. Lieutenant Governor Lalburn Boggs was a resident of Independence at this time and stood passively by in the crowd. The local church leaders were rounded up and given 15 minutes to respond to the demands to leave the county forthwith. The saints refused, and the mob took swift action. They began by destroying the printing office and press. They threw the press from the second story window. This included the destruction and scattering of most of the unbound copies of the Book of Commandments. Some of the sheets were salvaged at great risk by two sisters, Elizabeth and Carolyn Rollins, who fled into a nearby cornfield with the manuscripts that they were able to salvage. Today, it is estimated that only 20 or so of the nearly 3,000 copies of the book survived. The surviving copies are incomplete and end with section 64, verse 36. The mob then dragged Bishop Edward Partridge and Charles Allen into the square, tarring and feathering them. They then broke into the nearby Gilbert and Whitney store and scattered the goods into the street. Three days later, the mob returned again, this time with whips and guns. Edward Partridge, Isaac Morley, John Correll, John Whitmer, W. W. Phelps, and Sidney Rigdon offered their lives as a ransom to the mob. The mob gave them until April 1st to be out of the county. Being in a defenseless situation, the Saints agreed to the demands. I want to take a moment on this particular slide which depicts, for those of you that don't have the video, a uh, plate, a plaque put into the cement. It's right there on the corner near the Jackson County Courthouse there in Independence. It's put there by the Missouri Mormon Frontier Foundation, the MMFF. I'm a member of this particular group that goes about finding and locating and identifying sites of Mormon involvement and putting a significant plaque there to, uh, to secure the knowledge of what took place. This plate right here is right there where Partridge was tarred and feathered right on the corner of South Liberty and West Lexington Avenue. You can actually find that and see that today if you were to go to the courthouse there in Independence. Oliver Cowdery was sent to Kirtland to update the prophet on the abuses inflicted upon the saints. The saints in Missouri were told not to sell their land while the church sought redress from the state authorities. The church hired the services of two prominent lawyers in Clay County, Alexander Donovan and David Acheson. They would become true friends of the saints and represent their grievances many, many times in the courts of the land. Alexander Donovan is a, a, a true friend. Um, he's a hero of mine i want to read to you what's on a plate just below his statue that stands in front of the richmond courthouse it says colonel donovan was of immense stature noble appearance brilliant parts fearless of great moral courage sanguine faithful just poetic in temperament The champion of the downtrodden, eloquent beyond description and without a doubt, entitled to be classed among the greatest orators and lawyers that ever lived. That is an incredible statement to make about a man who truly um, was there to assist the cause of the the early saints in, in independence. As the church proceeded with its legal battles, the written word continued from Kirtland where a new press was located. Such newspapers as the Latter-day Saints, Uh, Latter-day Saint, Messenger, and Advocate, the Elder's Journal, and the Northern Times were all published in Kirtland. Education was continued in stride. Uh, Parley P. Pratt was called to preside over the School of Elders, a class of 60. The lectures on faith were given by the prophet and then used by missionaries throughout the land. Bishop Partridge was set apart as the presiding authority of the church in Missouri and given the assistance of ten high priests who were to preside over the ten branches of the Missouri church. On October the 5th, the prophet and Sidney Rigdon went on a mission to Canada, seeking financial support for the church, and the prophet sailed from Ashtabula. It's a quiet place that he enjoyed very much, a place where he could think clearly and attempt to try and resolve in his mind the problems that the church was facing. Ashtabula. During the interim, Governor Daniel Duncan of Missouri refused to provide protection and advised the saints to use the local courts. As such, on October the 20th, 1833, the church announced its plans to defend itself if attacked. This Uh announcement immediately renewed the acts of violence against the Saints in Independence. On Thursday, October 31st, a mob of 50 horsemen attacked the Whitmer Branch and Big Blue Settlement sites on the Big Blue River west of Independence. They unroofed 13 houses, whipped many severely, including Hiram Page. They continued on and attacked the Colesville Saints in the Cotton Branch. On November 4th, referred to as the Bloody Day, the mob again attacked the Whitmer branch, making the streets a bloody battleground. Two Missourians were killed and one member of the church, Brother Andrew Barber. One of the foremost leaders of the mob in driving the saints from their homes and out of Jackson County was A. Samuel Weston. He was an enemy of the church. You can see on this particular slide his original home. There's a post office there now. The following day, Brother Lyman White led a group of men from the Prairie Branch to protect members threatened at independence. Lieutenant Governor Boggs, now Lieutenant Governor, called out the state militia to squel the mob and negotiate a truce. The Saints agreed to a surrender and give up their weapons for protection from the mob. However, no sooner had the Saints relinquished their weapons when the troops joined the mob in a general assault against them. Now The terrified saints fled Jackson County in disarray. Most went north across the Missouri River and into Clay County, while others fled for the woods. Still others could be followed by the blood-stained soil of the prairies they wandered. Brother Lyman White said, and I quote, I saw 190 women and children driven 30 miles across the prairie with three decrepit old men only in their company in the month of November the ground thinly crusted with the sleet, I could easily follow their trail by the blood that had flowed from their lacerated feet on the stubble of the burnt prairies. By Thursday, November 7th, more than 1,200 saints were forced to flee and lined up in small huddled groups along the Missouri River in a state of despair. You know, it's interesting to note that in the midst of all this affliction, a prophecy was fulfilled. A prophecy that was given earlier by the prophet Joseph Smith, which stated, and I quote, 40 days shall not pass away, and the stars shall fall from heaven. Well, on November 13, shortly after Joseph returned from his mission in Canada, a great meteorite shower, one of the biggest of all times, occurred. The prophet was being watched by the mob because of this particular prophecy. It was a source of great strength to the struggling saints to see their prophet vindicated and to know their Heavenly Father was still watching over them. On November 25th, Orson Hyde returned to Kirtland with the pitiful tale of the saints' plight in Jackson County. In response to the action taken against the Saints, the Missouri State Attorney General suggested that the Saints form a military unit to protect themselves in returning to their homes. With this intent, Zion's camp would later be formed in May of 1834. Now The Saints crossed the Missouri River and found some relief from their travails with the good people of Clay County who took pity on them. For a moment, there was peace. Liberty, Missouri, in Clay County, became the new headquarters for the Saints of Missouri. Despite their afflictions, the church pressed forward. Joseph's father, Joseph Smith Sr., was called in December to be the first church patriarch. And thus ended 1833, one of the most trying years for the prophet Joseph Smith. The echo of a beating heart was growing faint. Join me next time as we pick up our podcast, continuing 1834 and on in Kirtland. Thank you for joining me. This
0: Come Follow Me video series is a bonus resource to enhance your appreciation of the Prophet Joseph Smith with little-known facts and research about American and church history. Thank you for listening today and for sharing this ComeFollowMe2021.com website. We sure appreciate those who have been contributing on our Patreon page under Latter-day Media. We'll have a link in the show notes, and we would love to invite more to help support this work. To contact Kay, email him at footstepsofjoseph at gmail.com.